0: Well, good morning, everyone. It is very good to be back here at Grace. I haven't been able to attend worship with you for two years. Two years ago was the last time I was here with my family. Today, it's just myself. We have three little kids, the youngest one being 12 months old, so we figured it would be easier to not put all of them on a plane for eight hours for now. And before I begin, I would like to calm everyone's souls by saying that my wife and I had really good Mexican food subsequent to Chipotle <laughs> here in the States. so um, and maybe one more thing before I start this sermon. Marshall already introduced me. I, I teach Old Testament at a place called Tyndale Theological Seminary in Amsterdam in the Netherlands and uh, Tyndale exists really for the sake of the global church. Let me give you a number that I just read in an article that was published three weeks ago in Christianity Today. Um, In the United States, there's about one trained pastor for 230 church people. In the global south, where Christianity is growing the fastest, there's about one trained pastor for 450,000 church people. What we at Tyndale do is we try to change that. Uh, The majority of our students are students from Africa and Asia, mostly Sub-Saharan Africa and Central Asia who come to us, they come on full scholarships, they receive an education in theology to be pastors and uh, missionaries and evangelists and whatever is necessary in the countries they come from. And they go back home to hopefully multiply this kind of work. to train others so that this number of 450,000 people becomes smaller. In fact, this article in Christianity Today was about a conference in Turkey, in Izmir, uh, where people from theological seminaries gathered to address this issue. And one of the seminaries that was represented was us, Tyndale Seminary. Good friends of mine were there to represent the school. And we do this because of people like you. We are a missional seminary. That means that all our staff, all our faculty, everyone lives of um, um, support. We uh, we raise support for everyone who works at Tyndale and grace, and the people here have very graciously supported us over the past three and a half years that we have worked at Tyndale, my family and I, and we are very grateful for that, and it's a joy to see graduation every year and see the people graduate. We're able to send them off into their home countries to do, what God calls them to do. It really is a true joy. Um, i really glad that grace is such a privileged and blessed place. Um, just the good news right now of the new building, um, God really blesses this place, and uh, we are really thankful for the time we had here. And if you want to know more about what we do, and if you think about maybe that's a, a a cause worth supporting. I'm gonna be out in the lobby today after the service and next week after the service. So feel free to find me and talk to me. I would uh, very much like to talk to you about Tyndale. Now, without any further ado, um, let us open up God's word. Marshall already read the passage uh, and talk about what is said there. So as you know, I'm a scholar of the Old Testament and I teach at Tyndale. And I give lectures on all kinds of things, the Hebrew language, I give lectures on different books from the Old Testament for my students. But for my own research, for the time when I get to sit down and do my own research and my own writing, um, I really like to focus on the topic of kingship. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know there's a lot of kings in the Old Testament. There's good kings, such as David and Hezekiah and Josiah. And there's bad kings, right? Kings like Omri and Ahab and Manasseh. And if you're a little boy, the stories about these kings, they're really the good stuff about the Bible, right? They're like heroes and enemies, battles and riches, fames and honor. Um, And perhaps sometimes I feel like I should be afraid that I I simply never made it to the more grown-up matters of theology with my research interests. But I just really love the kings of the Old Testament But you know, that isn't all there is to kingship in the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament carefully, what you will actually find is that the true king of God's people throughout history was never really one of those human monarchs. The true king of God's people was and is always God himself. Now, very early on this year, God, strongly put the idea of of his kingship on my heart. And I I know this sounds kind of odd because I spent years of researching the matter of kingship in the Old Testament, but I figured that I, I didn't really have a good grasp of what it actually means to live under God's rule in this world. And I assume those of you who are here this morning might have a similar question. If God truly reigns this world as king, where's his kingdom? If God is really king, well, how then does he govern our lives? If God is the real monarch of this world, where is his power? Friends, I am here to tell you this morning that God's kingship over our lives is unlike anything we would expect it to be. I'm here to tell you, and myself, that God's kingdom is, in reality, powered by weakness. And that this has always been God's plan for the world and for the lives of every single one of us. My sermon has four points. The governance of God's kingdom, the people of God's kingdom, the agent of God's kingdom, and the coming of God's kingdom. So, the governance of God's kingdom, the people of God's kingdom, the agent of God's kingdom, and the coming of God's kingdom. The governance of God's kingdom. The text that we just read uh, from First Samuel chapter two is what is typically called Hannah's Prayer. And it, it pretty much stands right at the beginning of the book of Samuel. If you open up your Bibles, you will find that there are two books of Samuel, first and second Samuel. But originally, these were one single book that the, the translators of the Old Testament into Greek had separated into two books. And this one book, this book of Samuel, that, is a, his, that, that book provides a historical account of how the people of God at the time, the people of Israel, instituted a monarchy to rule over them. And that happened in circa 1000 BC. So Hannah lived circa 1000 BC. And to understand Hannah's prayer, we need to understand a little bit about Hannah's story. Hannah lived at the end of a very troublesome time in the history of Israel. It's a time that we call the period of the judges. And it was a time of much uncertainty coming from both the outside of Israel and from the inside. There were foreign armies, foreign powers, constantly invading the country and occupying Israel. And there was also horrendous violence that Israelites did to other Israelites in that time. And besides belonging to such a broken nation, Hannah also had a great personal struggle. Uh, She suffered from infertility. She was married to a man named Elkanah, and Elkanah had two wives. The name of his other wife was Penina and Penina was able to conceive children, and because of that, she harassed Hannah, who was not able to conceive children. So Hannah is desperate, and at one point, Hannah decides to turn to God in her desperation. Back in the day, people traveled to a sanctuary to worship God. This wasn't like going to church on a Sunday morning, Rather, this is an extensive trip you do for several days. And Hannah and her family, they did this trip every year. So imagine Hannah and her husband and Penina going up to Shiloh, that's the place where the sanctuary is, and being there for a few days. How would you feel about being on family vacation with the second wife of your husband who hates you and harasses you? (laughs) Hannah was desperate. And, you know, there were parties around the sanctuary at the time that people were worshiping. There were dinners and uh, and singing and happiness. But Hannah did not want to participate in this because of the shame and the hurt she felt. So one night, what happens is she goes out while everyone is partying outside of the sanctuary. She goes into the sanctuary and she prays that God would help her. She literally proposes a deal to God, that if God would give her a child, she would dedicate this child to be a servant at the sanctuary. Now, eventually, Hannah does get pregnant, and this is the moment when she utters this prayer that we just read. Now, why would you start a book about kingship with the story of a vulnerable woman asking God for a child and her subsequent prayer of thanksgiving? Why would you want to frame the whole story of kingship in the Old Testament in this way? I believe this is so to convince us that the greatness of God's rule in this world is not found in the alleged glories of human grandeur but in humble reliance upon him. Let me say that again. The greatness of God's rule in this world is not found in the alleged glories of human grandeur, but in humble reliance upon him. The way the Bible tells this story is a call for us to look for God's work in this world in the low, in the broken, in the humble, not in the glorious and the mighty and the powerful. While the rest of the book of Samuel tells the story of several great men who rise up to power and fall from power again, this story begins with Hannah and her life, and her faith in God in the midst of her brokenness. This is where God is at work. Eventually, Hannah's, leader will become, Hannah's son will become the leader of all of Israel. His name is Samuel. And he will institute the monarchy himself. He will even anoint God's very own chosen king, King David. But all of this is only a result of what happens to Hannah. It is only secondary. It is only an effect of God's work with the humble and the lowly. How can we make sense of this? I think we find a very helpful explanation of this in the the great German reformer, Martin Luther. Uh, Luther argued in several of his writings that the principle of how God works in this world is that God always works, and he used a Latin term for that, subcontrario, which means God always works under the appearance of opposites. Under the appearance of opposites. Was that, what does that mean? This means that God's power is found precisely where we humans only see weakness. That his wisdom is found precisely where we humans only see foolishness. God's work is always under the appearance of opposites. And this is what Hannah's story is about. God's work in Hannah's life and in the life of his people, Israel is powerful precisely where we as humans would perceive it to be weak. His victory is found where we would see defeat, in the life of hurting Hannah. Now Hannah understood this theological truth 2,500 years before Luther because of her experience with God. Look with me at the words of her prayer in verses 2 through 5. There's no one like the Lord, for there's no one besides you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Friends, God knows. God is a no- God of knowledge, and God works. He works in the lives of the feeble, of the hungry, and of the barren. He works under the appearance of opposites, And you can take this principle and you can start looking at it every time you open your Bible. After you have seen it once, you cannot unsee it anymore. The story of God with his people throughout all the scripture is a story in which God works under the appearance of opposites. It's a story in which his power is found precisely where we tend to assume his weakness or at worst his absence. This is how God governs his kingdom. This is the principle of governance. As Hannah says in her prayer, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set, that they set the world. The world is the place of God's rule and he rules this world by working under the appearance of opposites. And I'm sure there were times when you felt like God has forgotten you and does not work in your life. And perhaps, you're living through such a period right now. And in such times, we are especially susceptible to the voices to come to us, either from other people or from inside ourselves that tell us that God is not at work. Where is your God? Surely, if God was there and loved you, this would not happen to you, surely a loving God would act differently. Friends, the problem is that way too much of our thinking about God operates under the assumption that God would act like we act as humans. But God does not act like us. He is not just a bigger version of ourselves. God works under the appearance of opposites. Let me invite you to come to a better understanding of this biblical truth that God's work in us is the strongest precisely when we assume it to be the weakest, in our hurt, in our sickness, and in our suffering. You can put on Hannah's prayer like a set of glasses and begin to see that where we assume God to be hidden, he is, in fact, fully present. He knows what you are going through and he works. He doesn't work in spite of you or in spite of your troubles, he works in and through them. They only appear to be opposites to his goals, but if we look at them through the spectacles of scripture, we realize that they are in fact the highways which God's spirit travels to bring us precisely to the place that God has ordained for us to be at. Now what about the people of God's kingdom? We saw how God executed his rule, the principle of his government, but whom does he execute his kingship for? Who are the people of God's kingdom? I don't know if you watched the uh, recent coronation of King Charles, but the whole ceremony was really saturated with biblical references and references to the Christian faith. At the beginning there was this moment when a little boy came up to Charles and he greeted him and he said, oh majesty, as children of the kingdom of God, we welcome you in the name of the king of kings. Referring to God. And Charles then responded in his name and after his example, I come not to be served, but to serve. So ideally, Charles follows the example of God, which is to serve the people. This little liturgical feature beautifully captured that God is not just a king in an abstract sense. He's not just a hidden ruler, but he is king for the sake of his people. He rules to help his people. He rules for his people, right? And Hannah says that in her words, in in her prayer in verses 6 through 9. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Hannah essentially says two things here. The first is that the fate of each human being is not decided by their their own strength, but by God's rule. And the second thing is that God executes this rule over the fate of each human being for the sake of his faithful ones. And both these words of praise for God, they couldn't be more controversial in the times we live in because they attack two of the most cherished truths we have today, right? Our autonomy and our universalism. In the first place, we like to think of ourselves as autonomous, as the creators of our own fate. But Hannah knows better because of her brokenness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Rather, it is God who brings low and exalts. And if you go on now to continue to read the rest of the book of Samuel, what you will find is Israel's first king. His name was Saul. And Saul is the prime example of someone who tries to prevail by his own strength? But Saul didn't last long because he did not realize that God's principle of governance and that this principle cuts deeper than his self delusion of autonomous strength. And as a result, God brings him low. And as a result, Saul dies on the battlefield in a battle against the Philistines, including all his sons, his entire dynasty. Saul did not realize that even though he is king, a human king, he lives under the kingship of an even greater king. And there is this moment in the book of Samuel, pretty much right in the middle of the entire book when you turn the page from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel, whoever separated the book in two did a really good job separating it at the exact middle. Um, There's this moment when the news of Saul's death reaches David who will later become the second king of Israel after Saul. And David hears that Saul has died in battle and all his sons have died, and he utters this lament, which really crystallizes in this one phrase David says, how have the mighty fallen? David was in shock because the king had fallen. The pinnacle of Israel's political power had died in battle. Why? Why? But we know Hannah's song, right? It's in the beginning of the book for a purpose. We know that God's work is under the appearance of opposites. God was not impressed with Saul's desire to prevail by his own strength independent of God. How have the mighty fallen? Because it is the Lord who brings low and exalts. Now secondly, we have a hard time with exclusivism. We like to think that everything is somehow equal. But God has a decided preference for the humble over the mighty. This is why it was precisely that the mighty have fallen. To quote Luther one more time, explaining what he means by that God works under the appearance of opposites, he writes, God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores health to none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind, and life to none but the dead. He has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. The people of God's kingdom are those who know themselves to be forsaken, sick, blind, and dead before God. Those like Hannah, right, who know that they are utterly dependent upon God to act in the middle of their own brokenness. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down the Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. And he lifts the needy from the ash heap. At Tyndale, where I teach, we have that tradition of um, every other chapel meeting we have, a student gives a testimony of how they came to faith in Christ and how they ended up with us at Tyndale to study theology. And about a year ago, one of our students from Ethiopia gave a testimony which um, really blew my mind. So this particular student he grew up in a very poor family in Ethiopia in Addis Ababa, the capital, capital, which really struggled to make, make to make the up necessarily food that they had to eat for every day. Really poor. And one day he had the opportunity to become a, a sponsored child with Compassion. So if you don't know Compassion, you should look it up. It's a wonderful Christian ministry where you can sponsor a child. Uh, receive education, food, and also the gospel. Now, this student became a sponsored child with compassion, and he also became a Christian through that. And he was able to go to university to study, ultimately ending up with us at Tyndale to receive training to build God's kingdom in Ethiopia. Now, you know what he said? He said, during his testimony, he said, God is so kind that he would raise up someone from the poor outskirts of Addis Ababa to know him and serve him with his life. When I heard this, I was ashamed. I was ashamed because I know the tendency of my own heart to accuse God of mismanaging my life. How quick are we? Especially those who are so privileged, us to say that God is unfair to us. Yet here is someone who has experienced so much poverty and praises God for his surprising kindness to him. Here's what I would say the people of God are. If God rules the world by working under the appearance of opposites, God's people are those who rejoice in this work with thankfulness. God's people are those who trust God's work and weakness to eventually produce strength. Let me invite you this morning to trust God to work in your difficulties, in your weaknesses, and to thank him for the past weaknesses and difficulties you had to go through. God is so kind. God is so kind. Like the student from Ethiopia, God is kind. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Now there's one more thing in Hannah's prayer we haven't touched on yet, and that is the agent of God's kingdom. Note how Hannah both begins and ends her song. She says in verse 1, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Then she ends her song by saying, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Notice how the two passages correspond to one another. Hannah is exalted and God's king is exalted. Hannah's horn is exalted and God exalts the horn of his king. Now, this word horn is a metaphor for honor. What we are seeing here is that Hannah's honor is exalted precisely because God rules the earth by ultimately exalting the honor of his king. There is a king. Even though God is the one true divine king of Israel, there also is a human king in the book of Samuel. And this human king at least in an ideal world, is the agent of God's kingdom. He is the one who brings about God's kingdom in this world. Look how Hannah says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. God will give justice to the earth by means of the work of his king. For this reason, he exalts him. And again, Hannah's prayer purposefully frames the rest of the book of Samuel for us. As soon as the monarchy was instituted in Israel, there was this tension between the human king and the divine king. and There was always this danger that the people, including the king himself, would forget that God is, in fact, the, the true, the real ruler of the world. And Hannah's prayer calls us to see the human ruler for what he is. He is an agent of God's kingship, which can be raised up like Saul and can be made low again like Saul in accordance with the principle of governance of God. Here's the thing. It's something that I always tell my students um, in my classes, uh, especially on books like Kings and Samuel, When you read your Bibles, you find these endless stories about kings and rulers in Israel. And what do we make of these stories, right? What do we make of these stories? People typically interpret them, uh, these rulers, to be like role models or anti-role models, which we are supposed to follow or not to follow. Moral role models. But I don't think that's actually what's going on in the Bible. There is a seamlessly, end, seemingly endless line of kings in, this, in the Old Testament with each and every king, uh, with uh, each and every time a new king coming in, in place of the old king. And I believe that every time a new king came, the people of God, the people of Israel, they would have had that hope again that this is finally the one whom God will exalt to bring about his kingdom. Because the human king is the agent of God's kingdom. Every time a new human king would have ascended the throne, the people of Israel would have hoped that he is finally the one who will function as the true agent of God's kingdom. Will this one be the one whose horn will be exalted in the Lord, like Hannah has prayed? Is this the one through whom God will finally bring justice to us and the rest of the world. And throughout the history of the people of God, there was not a single king who was able to make up that promise. Each king, each human king that God raised up, failed. There was one that came close. His name was David. And he received the promise that one of his descendants would, in fact, be the one whom they were waiting for. This brings me to my last point, the coming of God's kingdom. Because a thousand years after Hannah had prayed her prayer, there was another young woman who prayed a prayer. It is very similar to Hannah's prayer. It's another young, wo- another young woman who gets pregnant in, an in-, in a miraculous fashion, and as with Hannah, it was a time in which Israel, the people of God, were living through national crisis. This time it wasn't the Midianites or whomever in the period of the Judges. This time it was the Romans who humiliated Israel. But there was still that hope that God would raise up a king to truly bring his kingdom. In the name of this woman was Mary, the mother of Jesus, whom we call the Christ, which means nothing else but the Messiah, who is the anointed one, like the one that Hannah prayed about. And at this time, God truly gave strength to his king and exalted the horn of his anointed one. Jesus, the son of Mary, the Christ, he is the true agent of God's kingdom. He is the monarch whom Israel had awaited for so long. And we read Mark 1, verses 14 through 15 this morning, where Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Jesus, God's kingship truly comes. And the most magnificent thing about Jesus is that he himself embodies the principle of God's government. In Jesus, we see most clearly what it means that God works under the appearance of opposites. When Jesus was crucified, the whole world, including his disciples, assumed weakness and defeat. But the reality was that God worked powerfully to bring about his victory over sin and injustice and death. Jesus humbled himself into obedience unto death on the cross. And God raised him up from the dead on the third day. Precisely as Hannah prayed, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. What does this mean for us? It means what Jesus himself said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. God asks us to become people who rejoice in his rule with thankfulness and to trust him, even in those those moments where life doesn't seem to make sense, where it seems like God isn't at work. God asks us to trust him and his kingship because he rules under the appearance of opposites. And first and foremost, this means believing and trusting that God has set up victory and kingship over sin and death in Jesus. But secondly, it also means to make every effort to trust that God works in our lives today, even if we don't feel for it. This is is good news, because when doubts regarding God's goodness creep in, we can tell these doubts that God is not absent that God is at work right now. The Apostle Paul captured this most beautifully in one of his letters. Speaking of God's rule over his own life, he writes the following words. But he, that is God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen.